Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we kind of harvest the journalistic crop for the last week with regard to the Vatican and the global Catholic Church and try to separate the wheat from the chaff. Only, in this case, it's more like the last three weeks. Because, of course, here at Last Week in the Church, we are complete, absolute, and utter idiots. We decided we would take the holidays off this year because, you know, come on, what's going to happen in that period between Christmas and New Year's, right? I mean, yeah, the Pope will say a lot of masses and do some stuff, but, you know, there's not going to be any news. Well, in fact, of course, what we missed was the biggest Catholic story of the year, quite arguably the biggest Catholic story of many years, and that was the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and everything that has followed from it. So today we are going to be playing catch-up ball. We're going to try to articulate the significance of the passing of Benedict XVI in terms of three Ps. We will begin with protocol, that is, the details of how Benedict was laid to rest how his passing was marked, and how that has rekindled a long-standing debate about the office of the emeritus pope, whether it is in need of reform, how future such situations might be handled. So that's point one. Point two is the politics of Benedict's death, because inevitably, this being the 21st century, nothing can happen, not even the death of a human being, without being sucked up into the ideological sausage grinder of our time. So there has been a great deal of speculation about what the political implications of Benedict's passing may be. We will break down all of that for you. And then our final P today will be posterity. That is, beyond the details of the funeral rites, beyond the questions that abound about the unique office that Benedict held, Beyond the political sort of, you know, rattle and hum, sound and fury surrounding Benedict XVI and what may happen now in the future of the Francis Papacy, beyond all of that, we dare not forget that a man has died, and a great man, and it is worth taking a few moments to try to assess his legacy and how posterity will remember this giant of the 20th and 21st centuries. So all that and more is waiting for you on last week in the church. So please stick around. All right, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, January 10th. As I alluded to at the top of the show, you all are due an apology. We abandoned you three weeks ago, taking the holidays off on the notion that we wouldn't miss very much. Obviously, we missed a great deal. And it's going to be impossible in about 25 minutes or so to say everything that probably needs to be said about the life and the legacy of Benedict XVI and where his death leaves the church. So to quote the immortal, the, the immortal line from one of my all-time favorite films, I will try to explain, but there is too much. So instead, I am simply going to try to sum up. Hope you like the Princess Bride reference. Let us begin with protocol, because let us face it, the office of emeritus pope, as Benedict XVI lived it for the past basically decade, was an absolute novelty in the history of the Catholic Church. There had been a handful of popes who had resigned previously, but none of them continued to live in the Vatican. None of them continued to occasionally give interviews and show up at public events. 
none of them really went on to become a principal point of reference in the debates about the present and future of the Catholic Church. So all of this was new. And hence, therefore, the details of Benedict's funeral were also new. The Vatican essentially had to invent a liturgy and a sort of set of customs, if you like, to send an emeritus pope into the next life. Now, his funeral was unmistakably the funeral of a pope. You know, you had the, the gentleman of his holiness on hand carrying the casket. You had that simple wooden casket with a book of gospels on top of it, as we have seen in other papal funerals. You know, St. Peter's Square was, was organized and put together the way we have seen in the past for papal funerals and so on. On the other hand, there were clearly some unmistakable differences. For one thing, there was no supplication for the late pope that was delivered either by the Diocese of Rome or the Eastern Churches because that is a rite that pertains to the death of a pope who was in power at the time of his death. Secondly, the only official delegations at this funeral were from Germany and Italy, that is, the late Pope Emeritus' home country and his adopted country. There were no official delegations from anywhere else because, well, he was not a head of state at the time he died. And in addition to that, there were a number of other differences. I mean, for one thing, this wasn't even an official day of mourning in the Vatican because the Vatican only declares a day of mourning for the death of a sitting pope. Now, Vatican employees were told that if they wanted to go to the funeral, they could, and many of them did, of course. But officially speaking, Vatican offices were open and the flags were not at half-mast. And all of that to signify the difference between the death of a pope who had resigned and one who was still in power. Now, inevitably, oh, and we should also say, by the way, that probably the single biggest difference, which isn't so much a matter of protocol as it is just vibe, is how lower key the feel of this passing was. I mean, the only term of comparison we have in recent experience is the death of John Paul II in 2005. Now, if you remember, in 2005, in the six days between the Pope's death and the funeral, the estimate was something like three million people passed through St. Peter's Basilica to pay their, their final respects to the late Pope. The line at its longest extension was about five miles long, and the average wait was 13 hours to get in to see John Paul II. The day of the Pope's funeral in 2005, the estimate is 500,000 people were in St. Peter's Square and the streets and areas surrounding the square, and another 600,000 were at different places in Rome where the funeral was being broadcast on jumbotrons. Now, by way of comparison for Benedict XVI, during the two days, essentially, that he laid in state, the estimate is there were about 200,000 people that came through. Two and a half days, I suppose. And while that's a good number, it certainly is not three million. On the day of the funeral itself, the Vatican estimate is there were about 50,000 people at the funeral, which, you know, let's face it, on a day when the weather is nice, you can get that kind of crowd just for the Pope's regular Wednesday general audience or for his Angelus address. Now, all of this was in keeping with the desire expressed by Benedict XVI himself for his send-off to be a simple, sober affair. He didn't want a big, overproduced hootenanny. Nevertheless, the fact that this was so low-key came in inevitably 
for some criticism from admirers of the late Pope who felt that perhaps Pope Francis and his Vatican team were deliberately lowballing the celebrations of Benedict's life and the funeral rites out of, I don't know, out of basically just a desire to remind everyone of who's actually in charge. That to me seemed a bit of a stretch. I mean, it probably is fair to say that the homily that Pope Francis delivered at Benedict's funeral struck many people as a little bit generic, you know, not much by way of personal tribute to his predecessor, although liturgical purists remind us that there is a distinction between a homily at a funeral mass and a eulogy, that this was a homily, not a eulogy. The homily is supposed to be about the scripture readings, and Benedict XVI himself, being the great fan of liturgical tradition that he was, probably would have been the first to say that he didn't want a homily that veered into eulogy territory. So, make about what you will, but the point is, there was a marked contrast between the vibe the last time we saw the death of a sitting pope and the vibe this time with Benedict XVI. And now, this conversation has reopened debate about the whole concept of the office of an emeritus pope, and some experts, some church lawyers, some theologians used this opportunity to make the case that we need to rethink how we handle a resigned pope, that perhaps it is inappropriate for them to retain the title of pope. That creates a kind of confusion. Perhaps it's inappropriate for them to be vested in white. Perhaps they should just be the bishop emeritus of Rome. They should dress like a regular bishop, and they shouldn't live in the Vatican. And that conversation is going to go on. Others make the argument that, well, you know, like in the United States, we still call former presidents Mr. President. Nobody gets terribly confused about whose finger is on the button, right? I mean, we all know who is in charge. We seem to have been able to make our peace with that. Perhaps the Catholic Church can do the same. That conversation is certainly going to go on, and it was, in a sense, kind of raised anew by the debate over the particulars of Benedict's passage. All right. Now, for the unfortunate but inevitable political dimension to the passage of Benedict XVI, Benedict died, of course, on New Year's Eve, the morning of New Year's Eve, 9.34 a.m. local time. His body wasn't even lying in state before there were commentators and pundits who were beginning to speculate that his passage might exacerbate the culture wars in Catholicism because the theory went that as long as Benedict was around, the conservative or traditionalist camp in the church couldn't go too far in terms of their open, visceral opposition to Pope Francis because Benedict was around to sort of calm them down or rein them in, even if he didn't do it explicitly. Nevertheless, the example of his sort of loyal silence and his own moderation this would be the theory, acted as a kind of a break on that current. And now that he's gone, so the theory goes, it may be open season. And that sort of percolated for a while, but it really got legs and sort of exploded when the closest personal aide to Pope Benedict XVI, that is German Archbishop Georg Ganswein, who had been his priest secretary and closest confidant since 2003. Well, in, a, in, in essence, Gainswine went all Harry and Meghan on us 
Now, he didn't collaborate in a six-part Netflix documentary special, but he has published a tell-all book titled Nothing But The Truth, and he's given a series of media interviews in which it seems, in a way, that Gainswine has given voice to some resentments or frustrations with the current pope that kind of pent up over the years, but he never felt he could voice before. So, for instance, in one interview, he said that Pope Francis's decree, which reversed Benedict XVI's liberalization of permission to celebrate the old Latin mass, but when Pope Francis took that away and imposed new restrictions, Gainswine said that that sort of broke Benedict XVI's heart. In another interview, and also in his book, Gainswine talked about a kind of surreal moment in 2020, when, because after Francis's election, Gainswine continued to serve as the prefect of the papal household, the head of the papal household, which meant that most of the time that Francis appeared in public, Gainswine was next to him, and this was considered a kind of sign, a sign of continuity between the two papacies. But in 2020, Francis called in Gainswine and told him, okay, you're going to keep the title prefect of the papal household, but as of tomorrow, you're not to come into work anymore. You're not going to appear in public with me anymore. And you're really not supposed to do anything other than take care of Pope Benedict. That's it. And Gainswine said that left him shocked and speechless and said it left him sort of a prelate cut in half. And then finally, in the book, Gainswine also talks about how at the beginning of Francis's papacy, Francis would occasionally ask Benedict for advice about one thing or another. Benedict would usually respond in writing. So at one point, Francis had asked his advice on something having to do with so-called gender philosophy. Benedict had written back that whatever the triggering incident was required a strong and public refutation from the Vatican. According to Gainswine, Francis ignored that and never asked for Benedict's advice again, which Gainswine clearly took as a kind of sign of disinterest, if not disrespect. Now, all of this has sort of lit a fire under the idea that we are entering a season in which the Benedict camp and the Francis camp are going to be at one another's throats. If you don't believe that that's the talk, let me just give you a little sampling, a kind of press digest of what was in the Italian media over the weekend. Here's Corriere della Sera, the leading newspaper in Italy. Its headline, The Traditionalist Front Opposing Francis After the Farewell to Ratzinger. And the subhead is, The Malcontents Among the Cardinals and the Moves Towards the Next Conclave. All right? And here is La Stampa, another major uh, Italian newspaper. Their headline is, Who is behind Padre Georg? That's referring to to Gainswine. The idea being there has to be a cabal behind these revelations that Gainswine is putting out there. And their subhead is, there is a secret plan for stressing out Francis and driving him to resign like his predecessor, but his opponents are a minority and they need time. Okay? So it is just sort of taken for granted by the chattering classes that we have entered this period in which now it is going to be a war of all against all with the more traditionalist or conservative camp that would identify more with Pope Benedict, sort of pulling out all the stops, right? Crying havoc and letting slip the dogs of war. Well, you know, 
is that really true? Well, I mean, I don't know, yes and no. I mean, probably Gainswine himself does feel liberated to some extent to say what's on, on his mind, but it's not clear how many more revelations he has up his sleeve beyond what we've already heard. Beyond that, it is hard for me to believe that the real ferocious opposition to Francis has been sitting on stuff for the last 10 years that they haven't already said out loud. I mean, they've already called him the dictator pope, right? I mean, you know, they have already questioned the legitimacy of his election. They've already repeatedly called him a heretic. Theologians have signed letters accusing him of heresy and so on. I mean, if I can work in another movie reference here, let me quote Life of Brian. Worse? How could it get worse? You know, so look, I think the, the practical reality is that well before Benedict XVI or Francis came along, there were tensions in the Catholic Church between a more progressive wing and a more conservative wing. Almost against their own will, I think, Francis and Benedict have come to symbolize those tensions. But those tensions are going to outlive both of these men. Are they going to get worse? Well, maybe, but I don't really think that's so much about Benedict dying as it is about all kinds of cultural transitions, the rise of social media, the rise of extreme polarization, the rise of a kind of nasty form of populism of both the left and the right, and all kinds of other things that perhaps are coarsening and exacerbating our divisions, but I don't really think you can lay them at the feet of either the current pope or the emeritus one. Finally, let's just say a couple of words about posterity, the life and legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. But because beyond the fine points of how he was sent off, beyond the political debates that will always be with us, we dare not forget that we are talking about the death of a man who put his entire life, all of his energies, his prodigious intellect, his massive heart, at the service of the church. And if, that, if we can't sort of set all the rest of this aside for at least a few moments and honor that, then, there, then something has gone seriously wrong. Now, look, if we want to talk about what is Benedict XVI's legacy, I mean, papal legacies like those of presidents and prime ministers are to some extent always in the eye of the beholder, aren't they? I mean, you know, conservatives will remember him as a great hero who stood for Catholic orthodoxy in a time of secularism and moral relativism. Liberals will remember him as a sort of tragic figure who tried to stop reforms associated with the Second Vatican Council. Some victims of sex abuse will see him as the face of denial and cover-up. Others will remember him as the man who began a process of reform, and on and on. I think there are probably two things, however, we can say that are reasonably objective, that, that get us beyond the kind of ideological clash. One is that Benedict will be remembered as a great teaching pope. If, if print, if writing is the passport to immortality, then I think Benedict will be remembered in ages to come because he leaves behind a vast corpus, both before his election to the papacy and as pope, of permanent contributions to the intellectual sort of framework of Roman Catholicism. I think of his four speeches in Regensburg, in London, in Paris, and in Berlin, these reflections on reason and faith and the role of religion in a postmodern secular democracy, for as long as that subject is pondered, it will be impossible to tackle it without taking into consideration what Benedict had to say. So his teaching, I think, will pass into posterity. Certainly his resignation, this towering act of humility, 
that has set a precedent, made it possible for future popes should they choose to exercise it. Beyond all of that, you know what I think those of us who had the opportunity to know Benedict XVI personally will remember? We may have different opinions about his theology, his politics, how important he may be 500 years from now, but I guarantee you what all of us will remember, that we'd never met a kinder, gentler, humbler, more peaceful, more calm man. Benedict XVI, when you were in his presence, projected a kind of preternatural calm despite all of the slings and arrows swirling around him because at the core of the man was a deep faith in God's providence and that not everything depended upon him. And that gave him the ability to interact with everyone he ever met with dignity, with gentleness, with genuine humility. That's not something you often see in the great and mighty of the land. And the fact that such a man led the Catholic Church, admittedly for only a brief shining moment, eight short years, but the fact that such a man led the church and has now gone to his rest ought to be something that induces all of us to gratitude and to pride. We should be proud of this man, this great servant of the gospel that the Catholic Church produced. I know that my wife and I plan to go visit the crypt underneath St. Peter's Basilica where Pope Benedict is now at his final rest. Most of you probably won't have the opportunity to do that physically, but I encourage you to do it metaphorically. Place yourself, even if it's an act of imagination, place yourself before that crypt and say a quick prayer of thanks uh, to God for the life and legacy of Benedict XVI. He was a man. Take him for all in all. We shall not look upon his like again. That's our show for this week. You can find full coverage of Benedict XVI's passing and, of course, everything else that is happening in the Catholic Church on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We're not going to take another three-week hiatus. We'll be back here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, so be with us. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy. We will talk to you again soon.